Hello, new community. Welcome to the podcast. It has been a while since I have recorded in a little closet recording into a microphone for a podcast, but unfortunately, the podcast on Sunday or the Sunday service, the file was corrupted. So today, Monday evening, I am re-recording the talk, um, assuming that a few of you out there uh, will have a chance to listen to it. Uh, Also, if you weren't with us this past Sunday, Julie took a little bit of time to communicate that she has accepted a position at Lumen High School. For those of you not familiar with Lumen, Lumen uh, serves both uh, teen moms and dads who are in the process of trying to go to high school while at the same time raising a little one. And uh, she has been working there over this last year and has served in a couple different capacities there, has loved her time. And uh, recently they came to her and offered her a full-time position. And she thought about it, prayed about it. We talked about it as a staff and elders and a bunch of her friends and community um, all sensed that it made a lot of sense to us and to the Holy Spirit that she step into that role. And so she has stepped down as one of the pastors at New Community. And uh, we're going to do an official send-off for her as it gets near the start of the school year. Uh, But she has done an incredible job serving as a pastor at New Community. She has leaned into that role uh, with excellence and embodied what it means to actually love and care for people. Uh, She's just been an incredible team member. She is an evangelist at heart. And um, it makes absolute sense to us that God is directing our steps to Lumen. It'll be a huge loss for us on staff, uh, but we are thrilled and cannot be more excited for her to step into that role. Um, She'll give you more details in the days to come, I'm sure, and uh, we will pray over her and uh, commission her to head out and continue to love the city of Spokane well. If uh, you recall from the last several weeks, we have been in a series called Hidden or Hidden Life. Uh, The intent of this series is to describe the qualities and the characteristics that embody what it means to live a life for the growing good of the world. We've taken some of that idea from a George Eliot quote, which says, for the growing good of the world is partially dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life, in rest in unvisited tombs. And what we're doing is looking at obscure characters in the scriptures. In the first week, we looked at King Josiah. We talked about the quality of being rooted or grounded. He specifically was calling the nation to be rooted and grounded, in love for and obedience to Yahweh. In week two, we looked at Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, and considered the trait of loyalty and how to live into loyalty as a hidden life to really be a significant characteristic of someone who is doing unhistoric acts, but doing them for the greater good of the world. Last week, we looked at Shipra and Pua who were um, obscure characters that were subversive to the authorities of Egypt. 
There were two ladies who met with Pharaoh and were commissioned to kill little babies as midwives when they were born. And instead, they revolted against the powers that be and allowed the babies to be born, to be given life. And uh, we talked a little bit about how to be obedient for the greater good, that sometimes God calls us to be subversive. This morning, or in this case, this evening, we are looking at the quality of shalom. Shalom speaks to this greater idea, not just of peace, but of wholeness and right relationships, justice, salvation, and righteousness. Shalom is a space where everything is right with the world. And I want to look at this quality through the lens of the 12 spies sent into the promised land. Our text this morning or this evening is found in Numbers 13 and 14. And I'm going to read a large portion of the passage. So if you have your Bible with you or could look it up on your phone, it might be helpful to be able to read along. The text reads, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, this is an essential statement in the narrative. It is a promise that's declared at the very beginning of the story, that the land will be given to the people of Israel, which makes a lot of sense because they called it the promised land. And this promise that they would be given this land frames our understanding of this whole passage. The text goes on and says, From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there be trees in it or not. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. A little later on, it says that Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, 
or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all of the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Now here's what intrigues me about this passage. The story seems to indicate that 12 men went into the exact same situation. They had the exact same experience. They likely viewed the exact same fruit, saw the exact same landscape, met the exact same people, and yet they came out with two totally different perspectives. One group of men who experienced all the same circumstances walked away with great fear, anxiety, a sense of dread that they were certainly not called to live into the promise that God would give them the land. The other group of men encountered those same exact circumstances and they walked away with a sense of shalom, a deep peace, this inner conviction that God had called them to move forward. It was the same event with two wildly different outcomes. And this evening, what I want to do is start a bit of a conversation. My hope is that you'll carry on the conversation in small groups, that you'll carry on the conversation with family or with friends, and really ask a question. What would cause one group to fear while at the exact same time another to experience shalom? Were there certain conditions present? What decisions were made that resulted in these kinds of outcomes? And can this story in some way relate to our story. And for me, the first kind of idea that draws out from the passage is an idea of limited thinking. Now, Moses is an incredible leader. Moses is a a strong, amazing, capable individual who led the people out of slavery, who led them across the Red Sea, who helped them navigate food and water and grumbling and worship of God and all kinds of amazing capabilities as a leader. But right at the beginning of the passage, you have something that's very, very interesting. Moses is said to have said this. He tells the spies to go up into the Negeb or into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak 
whether they are few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether it has trees or not. Right from the beginning, Moses is guilty of preloading their thinking. He gives them cognitive bias. He presents a false dichotomy. You can call it splitting. You can call it binary thinking. You can call it whatever term you want to use. But Moses sets up the men for failure before they even start by only offering them a binary, a this or that. And I think sometimes much of our faith experience is not a this or that. Maybe you were raised in a culture or in a faith or in a religious background that always presented you with either ors. But I believe we serve the God of the possible. We serve a God who created the wide open spaces, a God that sees things as unlimited rather than limited. A God that examines the options we give and always seems to come up with other ideas. I mean, think about that for a moment. Jesus, throughout the New Testament, created moments where the disciples felt as if there was only one or two options, and Jesus seemed to indicate there may be a different way. Like one such time as Jesus is around the disciples, there's a large crowd, it's getting late in the day. The disciples and Jesus say, what shall we do? And the disciples say, well, there's really only one option, and that is to send the people home. And Jesus goes, no, I think we should feed them. And then they say, well, we can't. There's no way we don't have any food. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they say, well, we only found two loaves and some fish. And he says, great. That seems like it should be perfect. It should work. And in the midst of that, 20,000 plus people are fed because God is the God of possible. And I think... I want you to think for just a moment about the number of times you're presented with an opportunity and you only think of the reasons it will not work. Think of the number of times God has asked you to give or serve or love and it seems against your natural inclination that it would be possible. You preload limited thinking. You preload thoughts of inadequacy. You preload a lack of trust. You assume that it won't be possible. You assume that it shouldn't be you. And I think we preload having only two options of this or that when often God desires for us to find a third way. And in this particular passage, because of this preloaded thinking, the result was a poor report. The text reads, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. Now that bad report had some costly reactions. The first of those costly reactions was irrational fear. The people became panic-stricken. The text reads, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. Its fruit is plentiful. However... The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and large. Later it says, we're not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. 
Later, it says that the land devours its inhabitants, and all of the people that we saw in it are of great height. We saw there the Nephilim, these monsters, these human angel, like kind of Goliath-like figures, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. I've heard it said that worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. When fear begins to seize you, all of your ability to think rationally evaporates. It starts off with a trickle, and then it cuts a channel into which all of your thinking is draining. And life becomes overwhelming. See, the fears of the people became so irrational, they began to say things like, the land devours its inhabitants. The people are giants, and we are grasshoppers. These irrational fears led to some pretty poor conclusions. The text goes on to say that all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all of the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or we wish that we would have died in the wilderness or why is God bringing us to the land to have us killed and to have our wives and our little ones become prey? It'd be better for us to go back to Egypt. Let us choose a leader and go back. Now, up until this point in the story, God has been providing everything for them. Food and water. He's prepared them to walk into the promised land. He says to send out spies to scout the land. I would assume bringing back a report that it is possible, the land is plentiful, it is amazing, it is everything that it was promised to be, and it will be ours. And instead, the conclusions were, it'd be better to die in Egypt. It would be better to die in the wilderness. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back into slavery. Now, fear often leads to exaggeration, alarmism, and ultimately pretty poor conclusions. I want you to think back again to a moment that you had to make a decision and you made a decision that was based in fear. Maybe you made the decision because you were just anxious and you felt like you had to make the decision really quick or you were worried that your time was limited. Or maybe you made a decision that was fully based on the fear of pleasing another, of being worried what they would think of you. I want you to think of those decisions for a moment. And could you honestly say that any one of those decisions led to wholeness and peace and right relationship and justice and salvation and righteousness? So when we make decisions based on fear, when we make decisions to somehow validate someone else's love or to gain approval, or just because we are overwhelmed and anxious, they usually do not lead to good conclusions. Which takes us to the third 
poor reaction. And that is a grasshopper mentality, meaning that the fears became bigger than reality. The text says that there we saw the Nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. Now, this idea of a grasshopper mentality basically causes us to lose a proper perspective by assuming false ideas about ourselves and assuming false ideas about what others think of us. So the spies said, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. Now that statement is incredibly revealing. See, the grasshopper mentality always begins with a low estimate of ourselves. We seemed like grasshoppers to ourselves. A grasshopper mentality is a low estimate of ourselves. And then that low estimate usually projects onto someone else. So you notice that the spies didn't just make the judgment about themselves. They also made a judgment about what the Canaanites thought about them. So we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that it is highly unlikely that the spies went into the land and took opinion polls while they were spying. I doubt that they walked up to one of these so-called giants and said, Sir, do you have a moment? I just was curious, what do you think of me? And the big, large man looked down and said, Hey, little fella you know, I think you look like a grasshopper to me. That odds are didn't happen. It was projected. It was a self-concept that had clear symptoms, and those symptoms are usually a small view of self. Seeing yourself as insignificant or unimportant, having an acute concern for the shortcomings and difficulties that are a part of who you are. Maybe feelings of inferiority. Maybe you perceive that everything that happens in your life is a reflection of what you cannot do or who you cannot be. Maybe you only view yourself as one who doesn't have any more than it takes to be merely average. A self-loathing, a limited mindset, a belief that you are less than what God would desire. And this fear can have a devastating effect, not only on your own well-being, but on your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the overcoming of fear, that is what we are proclaiming here. The Bible, the gospel, Christ, the church, the faith, All are one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. Fear is somehow or another the arch enemy itself. It crouches in people's hearts. It hollows out their insides until their resistance and strength are spent and they suddenly break down. Fear secretly gnaws and eats away at all that ties that bind a person to God and to others 
And when in a time of need that person reaches for those ties and clings to them, they break and the individual sinks back into himself or herself, helpless and despairing, while hell rejoices. So the actions of the Israelites, the actions of these ten spies, these feelings of anxiety and fear and grasshopper mentality, one group experienced that while the other two men called people into shalom. Now, I would suggest that most people, if you've heard a talk on this passage before, this is usually where someone would suggest that both Caleb and Joshua had something the rest of the Israelites didn't have. And what they had was belief, or what they had was faith or obedience. And so they say things like, we are able to overcome and do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. And it's if you too have belief, if you too have faith, if you too walk into obedience like that, and they call the whole congregation, and the text says that the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now, while I do think there is some truth to the fact that both Joshua and Caleb had faith and a desire to obey Yahweh, I think so did the rest of the Israelites. They too had faith. They too wanted to follow. And yet fear, they were succumbed by fear. You and I also likewise want to follow Yahweh. We want to walk in the way of Jesus. We want to live in obedience and faith. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we often succumb to fear. So what is is it that would move us into a space of being able to live in shalom. And I think the answer from the text is found in Numbers 14, verse 10. And it says this, But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all of the people of Israel. So this is not so much a faith story, but a glory story. This is not so much about fear, but about a different kind of fear. See, this moment that set the situation right, the moment that shifted everyone's focus off this fear onto something else was a moment of the glory of God. Because in that moment, there was fear, there was irrational thinking, there was a lack of obedience, there was grasshopper mentality. And the only reality that changed that for anyone was the glory of God. What I mean by that is an incredible awe of God. They realized in that moment a terrifying, fear-inducing, fear-in-a-good-way, awe, amazement, astonishment of God. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, if you're not familiar with him, he's a Jewish thinker, an activist. Uh, He wrote many books. One of his masterpieces is God in Search of Man. And in that, he makes this statement. The way to faith leads through acts of wonder and radical amazement. Awe precedes faith. It is the root of faith. Awe, rather than faith, is the cardinal attitude of the religious Jew. In biblical language, the religious man is not called a believer, as he is, for example, in Islam. 
but one who stands in awe of God. In biblical language, a religious man is not called a believer, but rather one who stands in awe of God. I think in the church, in Western church, we sometimes believe, we get this false idea that if we're going to develop leaders, if we're going to prepare disciple makers, if we are going to begin to see the church rise up and make a difference in our city, our nation, and our world, that what we have to somehow do is download theological information. We need to like push out or give religious goods and services that build ministry skill. We start with 12-week Bible lessons. We, we end with know-how and to-do lists and all these things about how to live or what to believe. And all the while, I think, we are forgetting to speak about the idea of having our hearts captured by the overwhelming awe of God. See, awe may be one of the most spiritually significant emotions that humans experience. Awe may be one of the most spiritually significant emotions that humans experience. So you might ask the question, why is it that we don't talk about awe enough? Why is it that we don't get so excited about, with radical amazement and wonder, as Heschel says? And I would say that awe cannot happen when we have our eyes fixed on ourselves. Look at the story we're in. Their eyes were 100% focused on their situation, their circumstances, their story. Paul David Tripp says this, Forgetting the awesome and glorious one who made it all and holds it all together by the sheer power of his magnificent will, will always insert me into the center. This means that no story will be more important to me than my story. I will ask no bigger question than the question of how am I doing? I will have no bigger concern than my satisfaction and comfort. I will ask life to serve me, to submit to my interests, and to deliver whatever I demand. This viewpoint will guarantee me a life of huge disappointment. And not only that, it is also an insane way to live. I am not the center of all things. The world will not do my sovereign bidding. God will not offer his awesome throne to me. Awe of self, worship of self, underlies every form of self-destructive living. And that's what you have here in this text. You have a group that is focused on self. And Moses and Joshua and Caleb are trying to get them out of this space. And the only thing that gets them there is the awe of God. Going on to quote Rubel Shelley, he says, When either the Hebrew Bible or Christian scripture sanctions the fear of the Lord, it is referring to what Eugene Peterson describes as, a fear that pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, our feelings, and our circumstances into a world of wonder. Not dread, but astonishment. Not terror, 
but reverence. Not shaking in your boots panic, but enraptured with love fascination. Thus we begin to understand why Scripture says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is because we become what we worship. We become what we're in awe of. The more we grow in awe and admiration and wonder about something, we take on the character of the object or the person that we worship. And I want you to think for a moment, you've, you've paused in, in, in a few times in this to, to think about decisions you made or to think about a particular moment. I want you to pause just for a moment and I want you to think about a moment when you experienced awe, something that blew your mind, something that captured your wonder and imagination. Maybe it was a sunset. Maybe it was you standing under a majestic mountain. Maybe it was you after you had climbed a mountain and, and like scanning the horizon and seeing the magnificent beauty of the surrounding area. Maybe it was a concert you were at and you were just enraptured with the music. Maybe it, it, it was just think or picture something where your heart was fully invested in that thing. And let me ask you this, in that moment when you were experiencing the most wonder and the most amazement and you were most filled with awe, did you in any way in that moment experience worry or anxiety? I'm going to suggest no. I'm going to suggest that that moment was filled with peace and shalom and wholeness, and goodness, and a feeling that everything was right with the world. See, I think we must cultivate a sense of God, a genuinely, a genuine marveling at the wonder and the awesomeness of God. I mentioned in the talk that if I have always tried over the last 14 years to call us as a group of people into many things, calling us into a heart for justice, a desire for inclusion, a, uh, a, a desire and a deep sense of mission, a purpose, wanting us to be people of more prayer or a greater heart for the city. But if there is any thing that maybe over this last week I have wrestled with is the idea that perhaps I have failed as one of your pastors due to the lack of not calling you and me and us as a community to stand in awe and wonder of God. And so this evening, I just want to call us to that again, that, that we must be a community that leads with an overwhelming sense of awe for God and that the overflow of that awe, that radical amazement, that wonder would propel and inspire us to engage with each other and with our faith and with the world in such a way that we participate in this ongoing story of Jesus. Let me end with one last Abraham Joshua Heschel quote that I think best summarizes this meaning of awe. He says this, 
The meaning of awe is to realize that life takes place under wide horizons. Horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life or even the life of a nation, a generation, or an era. Awe enables us to perceive in the world imitations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed.